All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. First one, this is going to be the Global Tapestry, Unit 1, 1200 to 1450. The idea here is I'm going to go through the reading, but I'm going to annotate, I'm going to add things on as we go. You can always do the reading any way you want. You can just read the reading, or you can go through the um, annotated version. It's up to you. Um, I would suggest if you have the reading with you um, to annotate, add things on as we go through the material, okay? Um, so with the Global Tapestry, the idea is that we're going to do an overview of what the world looked like 1200 to 1450. We're just going to go to several different spots in the world and say, here's what it looked like. Here's kind of what was going on. When we get to Unit 2, it's the same time period, and we're going to get into what the major thing was, which was trade during this time period. Um, really quick, FYI, I'm outside, so you might hear some ambient noise going on, wind, um, maybe some dogs barking, that type of thing. Okay, all right, first, let's go to China. Two powerful Chinese dynasties during the time period, the Song 960 through 1279 CE, and the Ming 1368 through 1644 developed golden ages or, or periods of great achievement. Just so you know, the dates that we're gonna be following, it's everything from, um, everything's going in order. It's, it's all common era, it's all this time period, um, like 960, let's say 1000, um, is a thousand years before where we're at right now. So everything's going to go in order. There's none of that before Christ backward stuff, okay? All right, so the Ming Dynasty came to power after a period of domination by Mongol invaders. So there's a time period between the Ming and the Song. Um, you should understand that the, from the outside that when we speak of China, we're actually talking about its influence throughout much of East and Southeast Asia, as China has enormous impact on cultural and, de and political developments in those civilizations. So they have a um, huge influence, um, especially in things like writing. We'll talk about that a little bit later in this reading. In 960, after a brief time of conflicts, China was reunified under the Song Dynasty and Emperor Taizu. Despite a long period of peace and prosperity, the Song eventually fell to the Mongols in 1279, during which time the Mongols established the Yuan Dynasty. We'll discuss the Yuan and the Ming dynasties in the next unit, Unit 2. All Chinese dynasties, and there have been 13, kind of. We'll talk more about that a little bit later when we work on this um, information. They claim what's called the Mandate of Heaven. This is the belief that Chinese rulers, of Chinese rulers, that they had direct authority from heaven to rule and to keep order in the universe. It also affected Chinese dynasties by creating what's called the dynastic cycle, in which each ruler would be overthrown by a new leader who would then claim to have the mandate of heaven, and so on and so on. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we work on this information as well. At the height of the Song Dynasty, China was relatively stable. One of the many reasons for this stability was the bureaucratic system. That is a vocabulary term that you should know from the vocab term list I gave you. Bureaucratic system that was based on merit, which means based on doing good work, and through the use of what's called the civil service exam. Civil service examination was a three-day non-stop written exam that was focused on Confucian, uh, Confucian principles um, against something that we worked on. The exam created a large core of educated, talented, and loyal government workers. This exam also highlighted the Chinese continuities. The continuities are things that continue through time. Um, it highlighted the continuities uh, or principles of the value of education, respect of authority, and also filial piety, which means respect for elders. The Song also built an extensive transportation and communication network, um, including the building of the Grand Canal, 
a 900-mile canal that connect, connected and still connects inland rice fields to the large cities of China, thus enabling China's large population to grow. Song also developed new business practices, including the introduction of paper money and letters of credit. All of this, of course, led to increased trade and also cultural diffusion, which we've talked about. Song Dynasty, under pressure from northern nomads, withdrew to the south and established a capital city at Hangzhou which is at the southern end of the Grand Canal. Here they developed an early form of movable type, which is like a printing press, which resulted in in increased literacy and bureaucrats among the lower classes. Um, Printed books also spread agricultural and technological knowledge, leading to an increase in productivity and population growth. By the 1100s, the Song were an urban population with some of the largest cities in the world. Their wealth was based in part on their powerful navy and their participation in international trade throughout Southeast Asia. Really quick, the whole reading or literacy increasing because of the printing press. Basically, if you have books around, people want to learn how to read them, so that's why it increases literacy. Um, Let's move on. During the Song Dynasty, new technologies were applied to the military. Gunpowder started to be used in primitive weapons, magnetic compass, and the stern post rudder, which is that um, kind of the board that's at the back of a ship that the steering wheel's connected to, and it goes side by side. Uh, magnetic compass and stern post rudders made the Chinese junks, as their ships were called, the best of their time. The junks were also used as merchant ships, of course. Between 800 and 1100, iron production increased tenfold to about 120,000 tons per year, rivaling the British production of iron centuries later in the 1700s. Song technology also included production of steel, which is basically cleaned up iron. Okay? Alright. One of the most important developments of the song was the introduction of champa, a fast-ripening rice from Vietnam. This rice not only ripened fast, it also led to it, it also had two crops a year and was drought resistance. This rice linked with new agricultural techniques, increased food supplies, and led China to have a food surplus or extra food at times. China's population rose rapidly from six hundred to twelve hundred, as their population more than doubled from forty five to one hundred and fifteen million. The urban centers expanded greatly. Really quick, keep in mind with China that they have one quarter of the population of the world. They did back then, and they do today, so they have a huge population to feed, so Champa rice was really important in feeding that huge population. During the Song Dynasty, adherence to Confucianism justified the low status of women, which is another continuity of Chinese culture. Foot binding became widespread during this time, as women's feet would be bound shortly after birth in an effort to keep them small. They were wrapped basically in bandages um, really tightly. If bound for a long enough time, the feet wouldn't grow even as the rest of the body did. Large feet were considered masculine and ugly. More importantly, this practice, which lasted for centuries among elite families, led women to have limited mobility as the practice was painful, deforming, and sometimes crippling. Foot binding was a way for men to have complete control in China, which was which has the continuity of a patriarchy, which is another term you need to know. Basically, by foot binding, women couldn't move around, so it made men more in control. The religion that had the greatest impact of China at this time was Buddhism, especially in the Mahayana form. Mahayana Buddhism appealed to many because of its emphasis on peaceful and quiet existence and a life away from worldly value values. Confucianists and Taoists 
Both reacted strongly to the spread of Buddhism. Many Confucians saw Buddhism as a drain on both the economy and the labor pool, especially because Buddhism dismissed the pursuit of material accumulation, in other words, the accumulation of stuff. Tao saw Buddhism as a rival religion that was winning over many converts. All right, really quick on Japan, which is also in East Asia. Because Japan consists of four main islands off the coast of mainland Asia, it was relatively isolated for thousands of years. Ideas, religions, and material goods traveled between Japan and the rest of Asia, especially China. But the rate of exchange was relatively limited. Only in recent centuries has Japan allowed in Western influences. We'll talk about that way later in the course, um, sometime around 1600. From China came several influences to Japan. Through cultural diffusion came written language. The Japanese had no written language before 500. They developed their own language based upon the Chinese pictograph system. The two forms of writing look very similar, though they have different meaning. Also, Chinese architecture, in particular the use of the pagoda-style building, was diffused to Japan as well. Finally, several continuities of Chinese culture made their way to Japan, namely respect for authority and value of education. Interestingly, the Chinese have a continuity of conflicts with nature due to numerous natural disasters in their histories. In their history, like floods, droughts, and earthquakes, Japan, Japanese culture has respect and love of nature, as displayed in Japanese tea gardens and the way bonsai trees are tended to. We go back over a couple of those things. Um, that whole co conflict with nature or love of nature, they both deal with natural disasters throughout their history, but the Chinese culture just has a different way of looking at it, and they respect and love nature, whereas China has a real conflict constantly with nature. We're getting our way back. Take a look up uh, at a pagoda. Just type in pagoda to Google. Um, search and you'll see um, the style of building that a pagoda looks like. Um, that comes from Chinese culture. You see it all over Asia um, in different forms, but it, it's basically um, the Chinese diffusing out that idea um, and everybody else adopting it. Okay. Um, lastly, the language thing. Pictographs is basically exactly what it sounds like. Chinese writing was actually just pictures for a long time. Um, and those, and you guys are familiar with Chinese writing, you know what it looks like. Basically, if you think of like drawing a, a simple picture of a house, that at a certain point meant house. That's how they wrote it. And over time, it developed into actual uh, words and phrases. Um, and the same with the Japanese culture. Very similar to, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphs from way back. Okay. All right. So that is what is going on in East Asia. Make sure that you go through the video lesson. It's um, just over six minutes. I mean, barely over six minutes. And then go through the questions, answering them on a Google form. And that's um, a good way to keep your, your notes. Um, make sure you're um, saving those because you're going to need them. You can use them on exams. And um, uh, it's going to be kind of your, your notebook, for lack of a better term. Okay. Uh, we'll talk soon with the next subject.